0: Someone be so cool that you lie behind the scenes may not be as charming as a savage truth of waking dreams. Start up so battered white. Welcome you to real life. There's no dismissive, something's missing. Maybe someone somewhere's listening.
1: Oh, hello there. <laughs> Welcome to the inaugural episode of Mistakes, a podcast about mistakes and failures. Funny or poignant stories about all the fuck-ups that we've gotten ourselves into. My name's Donnie Sapphire. Uh, I'm an itinerant comedian, writer, bum. You comedy in Chicago? I live in Chicago. Uh, Most of the people I know and hang out with are other comedians. Some of them are successful. Most of them are more successful than me. (laughs) But uh, some of them are quite successful. Others of them are just open-mic losers like myself. Um, And so that's mainly who I'll be talking to, but I'd also like to talk to some professionals and famous non-comedians, who knows, we'll see. It's going to be some varying sound quality in this first episode because I recorded uh, the actual interview here with Peter John Burns, comedian, uh, man about town, Peter John Burns, in his uh, office studio, which is really nice. I'm recording this on like uh, a super sweet USB mic, but I also like have some kind of dispatches here and there from... Shittier mics from like a cell phone recording thing or uh, kind of out of a board a little bit. Like you're going to hear a variety of textures. Let's pretend that I do it on purpose to create an appealing soundscape of varying audio frequencies. But in reality, I just have ADD. I think of things I want to do here and there and I just grab whatever's nearby and I record on that. Uh, You know, maybe it'll get more regulated over time. Maybe not. So after this, I'm just going to cut the short little introductory statement, and then we'll go right to the interview with a man on the come up, a comedian, a funny guy, and someone with a lot of political opinions, Peter John Burns. So, I'll be right back, and after that, we'll get the interview started. This is a podcast about comedy, and about mistakes. It could be about comedy, Mistakes or mistakes that we've made in comedy, but it's not really, uh, you know. Comedy is just a, a way of telling stories or bits, if you like, the things that are shorter than the stories that are jokes. But bits are still stories; they're very short stories. Sometimes, you know, it's the old joke about uh one guy walks into a bar, the second guy ducks. You know, that's a very short story, but it still has. A beginning and an end. I guess not really a middle. I'm just fascinated by the stories people have about errors, mistakes, failures, and hilarious uh, consequences. You know, like a guy who walks into a bar, walking down the middle of the street. It's an iron bar. It's not the kind of bar you drink in. The kind you get hit over the head with. He walks into it. And the second guy somehow limbos under it. He ducks. He could have just walked around it, but apparently... This is either uh, an actual game of limbo or just people who are prepared to play limbo at any time. Play limbo? Do the limbo? It was dancing, I guess. They're prepared to limbo at any time. These are very agile people. They're in excellent shape. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. That's a story about... Uh, It's an interesting story because we all strive to not walk into objects and fall down when we walk around doing stuff that's like priority number one well you don't want to get hit by a moving object like a car uh... or a football and you also don't want to walk into any not moving objects it's not as bad as getting hit by a moving object but it's the second worst thing that could happen you walk right into a door or a wall or uh, a bar peter john burns also likes bars Although we don't talk about that, we talk about pretty much everything else. Enjoy. I always like make fun of Half the podcasts I listen to for
0: being glorified origin stories, but. pretty That's pretty much the case. But uh, <laughs> I still like to hear yours, though. The real brief origin story is that I was a stand-up comedian and actually occasionally got a paycheck for it in the 80s, the late 80s. Ah, the boom. Yeah, exactly. And at age 18, went off to USC, University of Southern California, with the notion of actually pursuing my fame and fortune. The comedy scene in Los Angeles in the late 1980s was no place for an eighteen year old, uh, oh, that was like Kennison era, pretty much yeah, yeah, exactly exactly so. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't do you know I mean, there was a comedy contest I did. I went to a couple of open mics. It was not a big deal, but it was sort of a punishing place, and uh, I didn't like it, so I stopped. I finished up my degree at USC in English Lit Creative Writing, went to graduate school for a PhD in English Lit, uh, not entirely completed, and then uh, through a series of bumbling accidents made my way into the finance industry, uh, where I work as my day job as a systems administrator. Now I'm sort of like a director of network architecture. Uh, And so uh, there was a brief foray out uh, to sort of battle middle-aged malaise in like 2007, um, but really, I came back in 2011. Um, I remember
1: it was exciting because I knew of you peripherally on the internet.
0: Sure. But then you
1: were making all these videos, and I was like, oh, he's a real comedian.
0: Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's still the jury's still out on whether I'm a real comedian. But essentially, yes. Uh, 2011, I started going back out. Um, sort of my uh, entry, sort of back in, was this open mic Coles. Uh, yeah. In, in Lincoln Square. Or, sorry. In, in Logan Square. Sorry. And. Uh, my shtick that I, st- you know, when I went back, it, because I had all these things in my head that accumulated over 20 odd years, um, was that I wrote a new four minutes every week, uh, for which Twitter was an excellent proving ground for that sort of thing because you write five jokes a day and you do it for a couple years, you have a couple thousand jokes.
1: I claim to fame in the, in the comedy scene so far is that I get to see other people blow up. But I'm right, <laughs> right there when they start. So I was at Beck O'Neill's, I think, second open mic ever.
0: Oh, sure, sure. And, yeah. And, uh, it, 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 and I think was I Cole's. must have
1: seen yeah. you, yeah, at Cole's like, your third or fourth time. I mean, it was definitely pretty polished. But like it wasn't like anybody really knew who you were around you that much yet. No,
0: no, because, I, honestly, I mean, I'm older enough than the Cole's denizens that... uh you know, the first couple times you get up there, it's like, oh, Jesus, his, his, the other guys in his accounting department think he's funny. And so I did uh, over uh, 60 weeks because Christmas intervened and, you know, a kid's birthday and whatever. But I did 52 consecutive four-minute sets and about halfway through that because Coles is what they call uh, like a veteran's open mic. There are a lot of people who book shows – so, like, I did 52 weeks, and halfway through, I was opening for both Cameron Esposito and Adam Burke, the two hosts, because they knew I had, you know, 15 minutes to go in front of them, because they'd seen 15 minutes. And by the end of it, I was headlining, so, and, and it's still in the process of editing, but I recorded my first album uh, in August. So, yeah, over the summer, yeah. Yeah, I did, at the, at the Indianapolis Fringe Festival, which was a lot of fun. Huh. So I don't know. This
1: podcast is called Mistakes Were Made. And uh, (laughs) that's very apt. (laughs) I think that everything in life is either a successful or a good story about a failure, you know. Sure. So, but I don't know if you have too many mistakes in your comedy career arc there. I mean, except for like maybe taking 20 years to not do much with it. But that's not a mistake, it's just a choice. But that's what I was saying before when I was mumbling to myself in the intro that I will append to this that, uh, you know, it really are mistakes. I mean, unless you're in prison or you lost a major limb, everything else is a learning experience. Right, and I make mistakes all the time.
0: I mean, it, like, there's, yeah, I mean, it's a laundry list. Uh, you know, even recording the album, uh, I did six shows, and the first show, big mistake, I led with non-political material to an audience that really wanted to hear political. <laughs> well, well, to be honest, and this was this was, this was was a choice, this was something I wanted to do when I was recording the album. Uh, no one knew me at all in Indianapolis. I wanted to do it out of town. I wanted to do it with an audience that didn't, Walked in not knowing who the hell I was, um, which may may well have been a mistake as well. Um, in terms of, you know, they're not roaring with laughter at times. You know, I get a couple of oohs, but I wanted that. How do you feel about the label of a
1: storyteller? Does it make the hairs on your neck bristle?
0: No, no, not a bit. Um, the one that I I I accept this label. I it. Bugs me though is I get tagged with a smart comic. (laughs) That's Uh, like the Greg Proops label. Yeah, maybe just because of the glasses. Yeah, no, it's what you know. And to me, it just it it. I understand that I have Dennis Miller. Yeah, it's a label I. It makes me uncomfortable because, uh, fine, you know, I throw around some four dollar words, but I don't do it to intimidate people, and it it gives the audience an impression that like there will be a test. Yeah, I think that some, you know, overly uh
1: articulate not quite the right word. You know, Dennis Miller, Greg Proust, but there's people that'll do like the open mic version of that and then you you you'll feel like you're getting shortchanged on comedic content versus here are some sweeping ideas I have about a change, which I don't think is true of your comedy at all. It's it's well, always funny first, and then maybe
0: you'll entertain some you know three syllable concepts. But I, I try. I, well, part of it too is uh, if I'm throwing out an obscure reference, it's because I don't think it's that obscure.
1: Right, well, I just I
0: just get tripped up sometimes where uh, you forget that uh, you know I made a Dallas reference and got blank looks a couple of months ago, and I'm like, oh right, none of you know Larry Hagman. I thought they were bringing it back on cable. They did. They did. Um but it, but it was a situation where like, you know, I mean the who shot JR era just, you know, and quite honestly a, a hipster Logan Square crowd isn't watching basic cable. I don't um, even own a TV, man. There you go. See, that's that. that I that. watch TV on my computer, but I call Right, it a exactly. Computer. That's what
1: I run into all the time. I'll watch anything on the internet. Right. Out of standards. <laughs> right. You know, originally I was going to be on your podcast after the 2012 elections, or I was going to have you on mine that I was doing at the time. I think that, like, I gave up on that because it wasn't a depressing enough result. So sure, I was like, well, what are we going to talk about here? We're not unhappy about the results. We just had an election in here in Illinois, well, all across the country, but specifically in Illinois in 2014. And I thought it was interesting uh, just in the context of my uh, podcast theme. Just, was this a mistake, the 2014 election? And if so, who made the mistake? I mean, I don't think that... Pat Quinn and his his people, that's the Democratic governor of Illinois, like they just trusted the numbers, which were pretty good the last time, I guess. They were supposed to be statistically tied or a little bit ahead all the way up until the election.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, clearly the the source of the discrepancy was the amount of turnout. Uh, and I don't want to, and I was about to say the culprit, and I don't <laughs> want to say that because, you know, part of what I've gone back and forth on, like looking at the results uh, and, and the aftermath is that... On the one hand, it is undeniable that if there had been greater turnout, especially among younger voters, it would have been a very different story. Uh, The stat that I've seen is that uh, among the younger millennials, 18 to 24, 7% of them in Chicago voted, only 7%. Uh, If they had voted at the same rate as like the 50-year-olds, that would have been 90,000 additional votes. Uh, probably not all for Pat Quinn, but let's say, you know, on balance, a great majority for Pat Quinn. And the the difference uh, between the two was something along the order of like 120,000 votes.
1: What about that whole, uh, I haven't heard much about this, but it, it sure pissed me off on election day. That there were, you know, robo calls to the election judges to tell them not to come in. And apparently thousands of them didn't. But... Right.
0: And I don't, that probably depressed turnout a little bit um i don't think to the degree that it swung the election certainly um but i guess a part of the the, the flip side of that is what what i want to say is that you know this is this is a mistake that the democrats make all the time which is that they blame the voters for not showing up when i think if you're somebody who's running a campaign where you can only inspire 7% of 18 to 20 year olds to even show up um that's that's on you in other words you know another the reason the democrats lost was because there was very low turnout except among older voters uh, who almost overwhelmingly vote republican these days
1: yeah i felt like quinn didn't have much interest in campaigning which he never has no to his credit he's a interesting character who was married once for four years but otherwise doesn't seem to have much in the way of A personal
0: dimension. (laughs) Right. And I have to say, you know, I did my civic duty as I always do, and I went to vote. And I cannot remember being less enthusiastic to vote for the Democratic candidate than I was this time around. And hell, I worked on the Kerry campaign. And that was that was uh, depressing I, enough. I, I
1: both worked in the Kerry campaign and ended up not voting in that election because uh, I was so mad. I don't remember why anymore. I was also in college, so it sure. wasn't like I was making good decisions
0: in life. But yes, you. Were, but you were one of those eighteen to twenty four year olds who. Uh, didn't uh, yeah, get the, he
1: just like he seemed to really be saying anything to anybody in the last week,
0: and it, it, well, that entire election was again a classic Democratic mistake. Where the Democratic Party nominated John Kerry because they tried to reverse engineer what the, they thought the American public wanted, and so there was a war on. So we needed a guy who was a veteran, and we needed somebody who had votes on, you know, this and that. And what they didn't, you know, when you're, you know, and he's saluting as he says he's reporting for duty during <laughs> during the convention, and there was all of this just cringeworthy bullshit coming out of that campaign because for some reason the democrats thought they couldn't run against george w bush as democrats
1: who would you have picked now if you had your uh, license like wesley clark or pre-adultery john edwards
0: well i was you know I mean, this is why no one should ever listen to me i mean because in the last uh you know open uh democratic uh ticket in uh 2008 i was a john edwards supporter because i liked his health care plan best and so if everyone had listened to me, we would have gone down in flames, because that was pre-adultery uh, John Edwards I was supporting. You know, I was a Howard Dean supporter. I still feel
1: bad that he got, you know, maligned for his yelling, which is just that a was video. Ju-
0: right. Th- that was, how I put it? That was one of the most egregious press, uh, I don't even, you know, I was going to call it a blunder, but that's not right. It was basically malpractice on the part of the press, that they went over that one, You know, a a scream over and over. You know, the bottom line was the press didn't like Howard Dean, and to be honest, the Democratic establishment also didn't like Howard Dean. Yeah, even after he got that success as the chairman of the DNC or whatever. Which, which Rahm Emanuel, uh, you know, our illustrious mayor at the time, uh, you know, in the White House, tried to take full credit for. But Um, then,
1: wasn't Howard Dean kind of forced out after that, or is he still? Yeah, was.
0: I mean, and he does not make friends. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Howard Dean, I have no doubt, is a bit of a prick to hang out with. But the point of the matter was Howard Dean wanted to get the money out of Washington, D.C. and into what they called the 50-state strategy. Rahm Emanuel's strategy, which he took great credit for, was to put up marginally Democratic candidates in Republican districts and hope that he could rope-a-dope his way to a victory. The truth, the, you know. Truth be told, most of Rahm Emanuel's candidates went down because, if given a choice between a real Republican and a fake Republican in a Republican district, surprisingly enough, Republican voters are going to vote Republican. That's a weird trajectory for him, man. He didn't really do well with that,
1: and then he didn't. I guess he was supposed to be some kind of muscle for the health care, uh, you know, bill. Would, I don't think there was any remarkable successes in that department. No, well, and also, you know, Rahm Emanuel didn't want to
0: tackle health care. He thought it was a yeah. loser. And he was wrong about that. And then he just was like, well, then I'll quit and go be the mayor of Chicago. Well, he, he he quit, luckily, just before he was going to be fired. That was pretty clear. Uh, there have been some books that have come out. Uh, Confidence Men uh, was one where, uh, you know, one of those like behind the scenes where they talk to aides and stuff. And it was pretty clear at that point that Obama was done with Rahm Emanuel and the fact that uh, there was a convenient job opening in Chicago – Was a good thing all around. It's also funny to me that, like,
1: uh, everyone in Chicago seems to hate him, you know? Uh, But, like, yet they'll not, they're
0: not going to mount any, you know, opposition to him. Well, there's going to, someone's going to run against him. We've been snake bit a little bit in that uh, uh, Karen Lynch, uh, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, just was diagnosed, sadly, with a brain tumor. She was looking like a very clear candidate to go against him. So this, this ties into the other
1: thing, though, that was what I was thinking about Pat Quinn is, like, how quick people in Illinois forget, like, how shitty our recent experiences and governors has been. Because we went from, you know, uh, George Ryan, who was kind of railroaded on that bribes from his janitor's deal, but everyone seemed to have the antipathy towards him because of his secretary of state, you know, licenses for bribe scam.
0: Right. And then uh, – uh, Yeah, I'm not sure he was railroaded so much as – it finally caught up with it.
1: right? I mean, people would say, "Oh, what? He just took a bunch of bribes
0: from his employees." Well, that's pretty illegal, right? Right? <laughs> not but, like... that, that's that's unfortunately how Chicago defines deviancy. Down. I do remember when I went to college in L.A. At the time, there was this huge scandal because uh, the then mayor Tom Bradley of of Los Angeles had hired his brother in law for something, and there was you know this was like front page news, and I read it as a Chicagoan, I'm like. Well, why wouldn't you hire? Like you, that's why you get to be. That's why you're mayor. You so you can hire your brother in law to do shit, right? Like that's is that that's that's corruption.
1: I feel like that's uh, one of those famous misquotes that more recent mayor Daily had. Like, well, of course you want to hire the people that you trust, right? Exactly. Well, that, exactly. that's that's you know, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, so. Um, uh, but then yeah, then after him we had Rob R- Goryevich, yeah. who even before like people always uh, will focus in, of course, on his trying to sell the Senate seat for millions of dollars. But in my mind, he was completely insane ever since the day of the Northern Illinois shooting, which was a couple years before that, where he ran in there all emotional and I don't know what, off his meds and said, we'll tear the whole building down and build
0: new buildings. And people were like, no, man, we don't have money for that. Right. No, Blagojevich was a remarkable study in self-immolation. Even before, you know, we knew he was directly crooked and on tape, you know, he was a guy that got into office basically because he was uh, the brother-in-law of a powerful alderman. Yeah, or and, son-in-law or brother-in-law. Uh, son-in-law, sorry, sorry. Yeah, son-in-law. And then uh, he ma- couldn't ma- get ma-
1: along with his only connection in politics. Right,
0: right, exactly. He decided he was going to go off the reservation and turn sides against his, fa- his <laughs> it, father-in-law. It
1: was a really weird, it was like a trash dumping thing, like uh, something that, like, why would anyone make this the hill they died on? Right, you know? right. It was,
0: yeah, it, it was a... Like, he was picking fights. He wasn't getting along with Madigan, uh, Mike Madigan, who's the Speaker of the House in in the Illinois House. So he had no friends. And uh, that's... You know, how to put it? There was no one there to speak up for him when he went crooked, and the, yeah, that kind of the fact that
1: a guy like that was kicked upstairs to the governor's office gives you an idea of the kind of inglorious role of the governor in the state since back in the day when Jim Thompson was running
0: everything. I feel like things have kind of right. Well, it's, it it kind of puts the lie to. I mean, you hear the stat that the four four out of the last six Illinois governors have gone to jail. That. Is certainly true and a damning statistic, but it kind of glosses over the fact that you had Jim Thompson in there for, like, 20-odd years. So there is a big gap between Paul Walker, say, in the 70s and uh, Ryan Blagojevich in the 90s. Did Jim Thompson go to jail? I know he was like... No, 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 no. He Jim, probably did lots of stuff that... I, this, I mean, this is the problem of being the Illinois governor now. You just... One assumes that if you haven't gone to jail, it's just because you were very good at covering your tracks. Right. He did not make any mistakes. To get back to my teeth. right, right, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, so he he managed to paper you know, the right bodies were buried, or whatever, or you know, perhaps he was reasonably uncorrupt. Does anyone remember in the first like ten episodes of WTF when?
1: Mark Mayer would look around for excuses to say WTF. I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God it was a real thing. And then he just kept it to the intro. And then, and then he was – Then it was all right. He's like, I shouldn't probably – because that's what the fuck, man. Really, though. <laughs> right. Life is when you think about it. Um, I'm not going to do – maybe a little bit. Just at the start, just to get you, like embedded in your in all your brains. Anyway, but after that, we got Pat Quinn, who is a weird guy. I And I swear, we're going to stop talking about Pat Quinn in another few minutes. But, like, I like I, – that's why I wanted to get Peter Burns on because uh, I knew that he would have opinions and facts that, uh, you know, are interesting to anyone. I mean, if you're not from Illinois, you're like, I don't care about your damn governor. But, listen, he was a guy who was – kind of made his name as an advocate for, you know, public interests against, you know, groups like the Citizens Utility Board, which is a weird – kind of sclerotic Chicago or Illinois organization that kind of fights like rate increases from the uh, you know, power company and stuff like that. Right. And then so then he was almost, you know, lieutenant governor by accident. And then he and in his tenure as governor though, he's consistently supported causes for poor people. And he hasn't shown much interest in kissing the ass of the business
0: lobbies. The the biggest problem I think Pat Quinn had was that and there's an argument to be made that he might have been doing the best he could with what he had. But there was never a sense of a plan. You know, the the plan for Illinois, you know, the economic recovery of Illinois seemed to be, well, it should get better eventually. It did come this year, but I guess he didn't really even explain it in a good way. It seemed like look at these numbers, they could be good. Right. Well and, and what and he ended up giving the sense that he was just sort of passively waiting for it to get better on its own. Which, again, I would prefer, I mean, you know, I may be bending over backwards to try and explain why people didn't vote for Quinn. I voted for Quinn because I'd rather have somebody who was doing nothing than somebody who was actively doing something harmful. And I'm afraid that our incoming governor will be doing that. Well, but But people like to have the sense that their politicians are fighting even if it's ineffectual, even if it doesn't make sense. And Paquin never got gave you the notion that he was a man of action.
1: No, although I think he took up causes like he just got this the um, dental uh, benefits reapplied to Medicaid, which was a right. thing that was taken out for years and like – no one was like, "Hey, you got to do this, Pat Quinn." People are mad about their dental benefits. No, he's just that. like, "This is an important thing, and I think you should do it." So when he w- cared about an issue, yeah. But I feel like there was because of the weird way he landed in office, he never seemed to have a mandate or feel that he should act like he had one from anyone.
0: Right. I mean, you know, and he came, you know, for the non-Illinois listeners, he came into office because he was the lieutenant governor under Rod Blagojevich, and when they led the governor off to jail in handcuffs, he suddenly found himself. In in a in a position that I think he never wanted to be in. I don't think he had any real aspirations to governor. Uh, like you said, I think he was looking to do some good in the lieutenant governor's office, sort of like, you know, this is a bad example, but sort of like how the first lady has her pet causes. Pat <laughs> Quinn was going to have his pet causes. And then suddenly he was running the place. Pat Quinn is Illinois' first
1: lady. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of something that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Awkward shoehorn into a sure. semi stand up bit. But, uh, I don't know. The supervisor positions become available at my day job about twice a year, and they put up flyers everywhere. Okay. And they say, hey, you should interview for this. You work here. Why not make more money? And they even put, like, dollar signs next to it. Like, how dumb do you think we are? We understand that a higher position will pay more money. Right. But uh, whatever. My friend got it, like, six months ago. And now he's always like, these guys are idiots. Who could do what we do? I have pizza parties with me. Literally not rubbing it in my face. They're saying, you should apply to this, man. You could do it, and we get to eat pizza. Which is a, you know, a perk I'm not currently that's perk, yeah, sure. entitled to. So I went and I applied for it. I had a feeling that I wasn't going to get it about two minutes into the interview. Because, well, they said, what would you tell your family and friends if we told you that you got the job at the end of this interview? And I said, I don't know. I don't try to be snarky, but it just comes out that way. I said, I'd tell them, hey, guys, I got that job. <laughs> What are you supposed to say? Like, I don't, I've been, like, I I tell them, finally, my life's ambition has come to fruition. I will be a supervisor. Like, anyway, so they did not say that at the end of the interview. They said, well, thanks for coming in. (laughs) I was like, oh, so that's not how that, all right, I see what you're going for.
0: You would like false enthusiasm for (laughs) this position.
1: Well, and then I was like, well, maybe they're, maybe they will tell me later. After several days, I got the feeling that I would not get it. And then also because it's a supervisor position, and I just feel that, like, at the core of my, personality i'm not a snitch and like you know that's all being a supervisor is it's like hey this guy's screwing around on facebook this guy keeps coming in late fire him promote him i could never do that and when you're a real g they can sense it in you that's the thing that uh, dr Dre said but it's (laughs) it's true maybe um but you know I i was like man i don't even want to do that crap like But yet, you know, if you find yourself in a position to better yourself, or in Pat Quinn's case, as obligated by Illinois' constitution, um, what are you going to do? I mean, he, he could have resigned, I guess. He seemed to reluctantly embrace it eventually. But, like, in a way, we're all the supervisors of Illinois, and Pat Quinn was our employee that we have to give good evaluations to or bad about, like, you know, this is a pretty tortured metaphor here, but by voting for him or not. So there were, I feel like, a few hundred thousand of us who were like, I don't like this guy. I don't get what his deal is and the guy on the radio says our economy is bad i don't know because i don't go other places
0: but it seems bad let's vote for the millionaire maybe he can tell us how to inherit millions pat quinn certainly never had any appetite for campaigning and he never seemed to have I'll put it the the angel of charisma passed over his house (laughs) when he was young and i think it is you know like you want your governor to want the job and like like we've said he just he fell into it. He was. It was never a role he was comfortable in. Um, and I would say, at you know, again, I voted for Quinn, and I would have preferred him to continue as governor just because he's not going to be doing actively bad things and harmful things to Illinois. But I will say that Rounders. Ability to hammer through dumb things is going to – or things I with which I disagree is going to be limited because you've still got an overwhelmingly democratic house uh, in the state capital. What made this such an incoherent election in Illinois was that we elected a republican governor and also uh, overwhelmingly – uh, voted in favor of a raise in the minimum wage, uh, expansion of medical marijuana. Which he has opposed and supported, that guy. Right, right, right. Bruce Banner. he managed but, to take all three positions on every issue. Right, but like, you know, there were three ballot initiatives, all of which won overwhelmingly, uh, shall we say, the social liberal side, and also elected a Republican governor, which indicated to me that, one, uh, perhaps to some extent people don't know what they want. Yes. But also, I think that election uh, for governor was really a matter of personal response and charisma. And I guess, you know, and maybe this is just me getting soft in my old age, but, like, I could remember a time when I would have been very upset about this election and saying, you know, people don't understand what Rauner's positions really are and so on and so forth. But I think some, you know, like, to be an effective politician, there's also an emotional component that you have to engage And Quinn was just terrible at it. And Rauner has a nice wife. I've heard her on the radio. I have no idea what he's like in person. Right, but no, I mean, and I think, I honestly think that that was part of it, which was the vote for Rauner was not a vote for Rauner. It was a vote for not Quinn. If there was a personality that Pat Quinn had, it was largely indiscernible to the public of Illinois. And I think we're just tired of having a non-entity in the governorship. And, you know, we're even willing to risk having a bad governor just to get rid of this guy (laughs) people are just too
1: yeah i agree though i think that especially like it made me angry that people voted for the things that you know were his issues it's like you should have to pass a basic reading comprehension test like who supports the minimum wage increase and got it on the ballot are you voting for that
0: guy no why are you voting for it then right but i i think i think part of it is just that as democrats i think we tend to lean a little too heavily sometimes on left-brain reason and logic. Like, you shouldn't do this, you know, and that's why we, you know, as... Sure, although Obama is a great ex- exception to
1: that. He's successfully won two terms on pretty much no logical... So, I mean, you I mean, far his position,
0: fine. But the people who vote for him, I feel like, to a large extent, don't, but they just like him. Yeah, but, but I think that's part of it, which is that there is an emotional component to it uh, and a persuasive component. I mean, you know, it's why Democrats were so frustrated and baffled by like the Reagan phenomenon because Reagan was completely incoherent in his stances. He ran as opposed to the deficit. He ran up a record one, but he managed to somehow engage the emotions of his supporters in a way that his opponents never did. And I I think, in, you know, Democrats tend to discount emotional appeals because, you know, we're all about facts and reason and logic and blah, 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 blah. But, but what I'm trying to say is that doesn't necessarily make us superior. It means that we keep missing out on this part, which is, you know, trying to put John Kerry up, right? Like John Kerry was a guy that couldn't rally a goddamn softball team and we made him the national candidate because – we thought we could reverse engineer a winner. Yeah, and it's almost satisfying
1: now to see him like used to punish other countries as our Secretary of State. Like they have to listen to him, right, Exactly. Yes. Um, <laughs> when they piss us off, it's like this is what you get, man. You got you to. We don't have to hear him here. We send him there to bother you if you don't. Right. 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 Exactly.
0: Right. But yeah, the, I mean, God, you know, just watching him ponderously sort of slump his way through Secretary of State duties. I wonder if he'll run in two thousand sixteen. I know he's done.
1: Hey Biden thinks he's gonna run in two thousand sixteen. Because Biden's crazy. I mean <laughs> See, there's a little thing in The uh, New Yorker about it. Where well, the guy writing the article all but tries to explain to him you're gonna be super old and half the country thinks you're a shirtless hillbilly due to the onion. Right, right. Joe Biden seems
0: to be a man that cannot count to eight.
1: Well, you talk about like raw political talent but meaning
0: a lack of basic facts or coherence much of the time. He's very charismatic. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's worth noting that basically to kind of give a sense of the limited palette range that we had in Illinois. Our gubernatorial election was a race between two old men that was largely decided by old people. That was That's the nutshell. It's like two guys in their 70s running against each other and voted on by guys in their 70s.
1: So, all right, well, uh, getting back to mistakes in general. Sure. So it's interesting because, I mean, I'm trying to sort of not jump out for 20 years necessarily, mm-hmm. but to juggle the other, you know, concerns of life. It's hard, like, to write new material every week, but, like, you see a lot of people doing it the other way around, you know? Like, you see the same guy do the same five minutes 48 times in a month. Right. Did you, um, were you
0: worried that, like, sometimes those guys seem to move up, too? I don't know how, though. Well, if it's good material, I, you know, the it's it's always a balancing act. An argument could be made that I have abandoned material too quickly because I get bored with it. But I'd also say at the same time, more recently, I've been leaning on the same 30 minutes. Right, once you have a good 30 minutes, then you can certainly lean on that. Part of the reason I did the album, honestly, was to force myself to retire material. And I, I there is a tremendous benefit to actually practicing your material, uh, you know, in front of an audience or even by yourself. So the same guy who does the same five minutes over and over, he or she is getting a benefit as well.
1: I it's guess... always guys.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. That's just the scene for the most part. Well, you're going to have that. But I would say this is perhaps the benefit of my Rip Van Winkle status of disappearing for 20-odd years. And it's not that it happens that often. But whenever I do get asked, like, what's the big difference between when you were doing comedy in the 1980s and now? The answer is easy. It's women. They're actually smart, funny women doing good stuff and they're not uh the girlfriend of a comedian they're not the significant other of somebody like they're on their own doing stuff and it's made it has made such a tremendous difference just in the way that a scene works because bluntly they take the alpha down a couple of notches comedy in the 80s was there were a lot of really aggressive alpha dudes who made, they were just, you know, it was just all these like weird fucking power plays. And- I've been
1: uh, I've been watching, and I recommend anyone to do this, but, like, almost every episode of An Evening at the Improv yeah. is on Hulu for free. Oh, really? And, like, yeah, and I just watch these things. They're great because, the, for one thing, they're not indexed at all. So you'll, like, on any other stru- source on the Internet that I've heard of, so you'll have these four names in there. You're like, I've never heard of any of these guys. Right. And you Google them in quotes, and, you know, one guy turns out is a major uh, staff writer on How I Met Your Mother, Another guy died in 1991 in a car accident.
0: Right, right, right. You know,
1: another one is just an attorney in private practice in Wales or something. Some of them are really good. A lot of them are terrible. (laughs) The women do seem, and it's I'm sure not a reflection of the actual female talents at the time, but the people that Bud Friedman picked to be on his show seem to be overwhelmingly, you know,
0: playing a couple roles. That's what you were allowed at the time. And part of what's gotten better, in my opinion, is just this, this wider range of discourse. There are just different ways to be. Female and on stage.
1: There's a lot of both lesbians and and girls who are kind of
0: not not uh, lesbians, not
1: yes. not trying to be real political or sexual, which is cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean you, you can. There, there there are women performing in stand up. I mean, I'll throw a couple names out: Katie McVeigh, Stephanie Haas, Sonia Denis. I mean, who who are doing observational uh, comedy from the point of view of being a woman, but it is not limited to. I'm the sexy one, or I'm the unlovable one. I mean, they're they are allowed finally to be as equally fucked up and strange and weird as the dudes, and that that's a great and uh, you know it's it's how to put it. They're they're still you know uh, in the realm of equality. It's such a far way to go. So I don't want to be the guy that says it's all good now, but it is a tremendous sea change that I don't think. Um. You know, a lot of shall I say, you know, my younger colleagues get is that you were really, you know, you were allowed to be Paula Poundstone or you were allowed to be uh, Jenny Jones. Those were kind of like your two options in the '80s. And the fact that you now, you know, you don't have to be the sexy one and you don't have to be like the ugly one, like because that was it. That was that was the two. Yeah, and they're both defined by how fuckable uh, men thought you were. That was, and now. Like we are inconsequential, uh, you know, in terms of how they decide their what they want to be, and that's that's a big difference. Well,
1: you get to see more women just being people, which yeah, is, you know, exactly. That's like the concept of feminism is that women are people, and so human rights or how did I mangle that? Feminism is the idea that women are humans who deserve human rights. Also, yeah, exactly.
0: So, and um,
1: so it's good to see that in comedy. Although I, I wouldn't mind seeing a little more. Of, ideological driven comedy sometimes I, you,
0: I in the midwest at least is an antipathy to that i mean i would say that my existence sort of uh, serves as a rebuttal to that uh, well, right there it, aren't enough of yous there's well you feel i guess that's good for you though there are other people like you know some of the people i mentioned like stephanie haas is certainly not uh she's not unideological you know and there there are people in the midwest like Stuart huff who is pretty thoroughly ideological and playing honky tonks uh, in the Midwest and the South. Uh, but nice. yeah, I mean, but you know, the thing is, twas ever thus, right? I mean, we know who Bill Maher and John Stewart are. John Stewart, by the way, not very political in his comedy until he no, got, he's the, talking got the gig. About cat all the time. Right. Just some good cat humor to this day. It stands the test of time. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the political guy, like there's never been a preponderance of us. I find that ranting, especially on stage, has a limited use. I mean, you know, yeah. part, there was a period And I am very glad that it's over during the Bush years, by which I mean W. I remember I I went to go see Lewis Black, and this was not necessarily his fault, but he got more applause breaks than laughter, and that was a very common trope in that period. That just means people agree with you, but they don't think you're that funny. Yes, exactly. And and I'm glad that that period is over. I understand why it existed, because there was a period, if you were left of center during the Bush era where you had to go seek out the company of others because everyone on television, the way they were speaking, you thought you were insane and alone. Like, you know, I don't think this war is a good idea. And yet, you know, the media was so much in the tank for that, that you had, you know, so I understand the impulse to go seek others, but there was a really sort of dismal period, I think, for political comedy during the Bush era because it was just easy, right? You know, also you, you could shout Bush sucks and everyone
1: would clap. Remember when David Cross was just like ranting in a not
0: very humorous fashion for several years? Right, right. I certainly understand on a human level that uh, we were a nation torturing people and committing war crimes. You know, we still are, though. We just. Right. But I mean, I understand like, so I understand the impulse to be upset about it. But I think just going out and uh, without wit uh, bashing Republicans, even if I agree with you, it's just a mug's game. It's sort of the worst form of pandering. But, yeah, you're right. It was from being in the opposition. Well, though, you know, for me, I've had uh, a much happier time, relatively speaking, bashing Obama from the left than I ever did bashing Bush. Well,
1: Well, I always felt, yeah, I always felt like with Bush, like the same way that I want to bash the electorate now for voting for Rauner. I'm always like, well... In a democracy, you have the government you deserve.
0: This is what America looks like. Right. Lord knows during the 2008 elections, or uh, 2008 and 2012, I shed a tear every time one of those Republican candidates went away because they were nothing but comedy gold. That's interesting. Yeah, from 2008 and by 2012. 2012, I was performing regularly. Then you get to look at each election story as a potential material. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was why, you know, I don't want to say it was a no-brainer to do 52 consecutive new sets, but Jesus Christ, you're being handed material every day. You know, you had uh, Rick Perry being unable to count to three. You had Herman Cain getting caught for adultery with a woman named Ginger White. I mean, which is like, I mean, it just you're being handed these packets of gold. It was like the stork was dropping them down the chimney every week. But was there ever
1: a time in your life where you had a position of some responsibility that you were just not feeling anymore, but you couldn't find a way to bow out. And so you just waited for the situation to take its course
0: or I don't know what. It's to some extent I mean, I, I there was a period in my career where I was um, in charge of the entire office uh, for you know, a, a local branch, if you will, of a much larger organization. And suddenly I was working for, uh, a new hire and was told that I would be spending 25% of my time traveling to New York City. Uh, at which point I found another job. Oh, wow. Well, but yeah. I mean, you took action. You get to a certain position and you've been you've had a career of 15 years or something like that in technology. People occasionally call up and say, "Hey, I got a new company, you want a gig?" And most of the time you say no until you're unhappy and then you say yes. <laughs> so, um
1: there's not money in comedy until I don't know, maybe you've done it for like six or seven or eight years to live off of
0: exclusively? would you say, or would you think that's too long of a time frame? I cannot envision a situation where I would be making uh, money from comedy solely. I don't know if you got a sitcom and they gave you a deal. You know it's why I, I try to couch this carefully, right? I could win the lottery. I could be offered a sitcom. I find those two circumstances equally likely. I do find comedians under thirty to be like possessed of a little bit
1: of a mania that this will happen to them, and once in a while it does. So I mean, hell, right. good for good for them. It's not an entertaining uh, way to look at your comedy career. Certainly, like how can I be funnier versus oh, I think I could be on Saturday Night Live. Like you're doing open
0: mics, dude. <laughs> yeah, I guess the good news of doing it in my mid forties is that my expectations are diminished, and so I can take uh, pleasure from doing this without expectations of career i do think that's what p- makes people miserable right because there's always the thing that you want that's the next thing that you can't have yet right if you're an open mic you're like boy if i could just get a showcase my life would be different if you're doing showcases in chicago you're like boy if i could crack the clubs then my life would be different and if you start doing club gigs then you're like boy i'd like to instead of a guest i'd like to feature and if you feature you want to be a headliner and there's always this other thing that's preventing you from being happy well, I've never made any type of progress, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, e- even if it's going to an open mic, you need to know why you're there. You know, there, there should be a purpose to you being there. And sometimes it's, I'm trying to hone this piece and get better at it. That's great. Because there, there are sometimes when, you know, an open mic is like six guys staring at you dead-eyed, and really you're just there to move your jaw, you know, in the, the approximate way to get those words out. And that's not worth nothing. But, you know, I was having a conversation with, uh, with someone online last night about this, which is, you know, a pet peeve of mine is when somebody's up on stage and they're like, right, what was I going to talk about tonight? I'm like, then sit the fuck down. Because if you don't know why you're there or what you want to talk about, then you should have been home writing.
1: Uh, yeah, it's pretty tiresome to see that, if you, especially if you don't even have your general topics picked out.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it, there are obviously some exceptions. But most of the time when I hear... Uh, you know I can only write on stage my immediate and unsympathetic response is bullshit. Go home, put a pad of paper in front of you, write out some jokes. Strangely enough, when you actually worry about the order of the words that are that you're going to say, you can make them funny and obviously there there are sometimes you discover gold on stage that you know serendipitously, and that's great, and you should incorporate that when you find it but you know, I see so many guys at open mics that are like, well, I saw this movie the last week. I'm like, sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. This isn't your, your, your chance to make people listen to you for four minutes. That's not why we're here. You're supposed to be working on your craft.
1: Yeah, so, hmm, mistakes.
0: I mean, yes. I, the, you know, you can make a mistake by throwing away material too quickly. You can make a mistake by holding on to material for too long. Especially, and you see this a lot with the open mic people sometimes. And I still feel like... You know, in my heart, I'm an open micer, so uh, that's not to say. Oh, he's just. uh," I I hate that as a term of disparagement. But like, when you're starting out, if you're going to be working on that five minutes over and over, it better be good. And a good five minutes can
1: get you like way
0: too far realistically. So you should at least have that. Well, and and the thing is, like, I I see people practicing the same jokes over and over, and I'm like, these are not great jokes.
1: Yeah, that's not really. Yeah, you're not going to find some hidden tag that will make it like 50% better anything no, like that. No. No. You're in a pretty good place. Doing spots around town now and Yeah. You do some stuff at your own show, right? You do the intro or I occasionally I host at the show I co-produce. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, yeah, I mean I I occasionally I'm playing clubs in the Midwest. So what's you know, your 2-year to 5-year plan? Oh, for taking over the world. I don't you know, it's funny. Um I don't do a 5-year plan. And the reason I don't is that uh I don't know if I could state a five year plan that wouldn't sound um <laughs> it was just a shot in the dark to see if you had one Well, well my, my problem is is that you know i'm forty six years old. my five year plan is then I will be fifty one years old. but that's
1: just prime time for comedy. Look at all the dudes at that
0: age who are just hitting their stride now. Ah, uh, no, those guys put, you know have had like 20 year careers do, under the radar. Sure. Um, I I just, you know, the thing is, I enjoy doing what I'm doing. I would like to do more of it. Um, I would uh, like more listeners on my podcast, like anyone else, though, you know, releasing episodes would be a good way of getting that done. Um, I would like the album that I'm currently editing to come out on a good label and to be reasonably successful. You got to do
1: that, uh, you got to come back to Twitter, at least for the album. Maybe, or maybe not. Back to Twitter, Peter quit Twitter long before people were quitting Twitter to focus on their comedy careers. I mean, I'm not saying it, it, it definitely propelled him, but it was, but you could make that argument if you wanted to. Just to, hey man, you should quit Twitter because look at my career. Here's where I quit Twitter, and here's where things took off.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do not regret my time uh, writing jokes for Twitter. It got those muscles back. In working order so that I could perform better. Having said that, there is nothing I hear from people's recent Twitter experiences that even in the slightest entices me to come back.
1: It's been a very volatile year for Twitter, especially if you're interested in issues like feminism or equal rights for people. Yeah, it just sounds like a, 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 a lot more trolls and a lot more vicious doxing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it just it sounds like a miserable place. And to be honest, I will say that again, in terms of uh how to put it, things that matter and things that don't. I was very happy to get the part of my brain back that had sort of really unconsciously – um like, you didn't realize you were carrying this weight till it came off. I would get emails saying that I gained a new – you know, you get the email that says you gained a new follower, and that was like a little shot of validation to get you through – the next period of the day. And if you started to lose followers, that became some sort of minor crisis. And you would, I I mean, I was serious enough that I was the guy that would time, you know, like write my tweets the night before and schedule them. The best tweet of course would go out at 3 PM because (laughs) that's when you get all the coasts. Right. Exactly. 4 PM in the East coast, but it's still just 1 PM in the West coast. Right. Right. West coast is coming back from lunch. You know, the East coast has started to fuck off. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and to go to Fave Star and to see if you could make the leaderboard and how many stars did you that get on system this and how many really fallen which, into
1: disrepair in the last few years, it, it, which it, is probably for the best, but like i don't even I don't understand he I guess the guy who ran that website he has a new website now that he's more interested in about doing corporate email or something, sure, so he just like it doesn't index like more than ten percent of people's favorites and retweets and stuff now, so it's like hey, but it was also. Utterly meaningless. It was even when it worked, it was meaningless, but now it doesn't right. work, which is kind of worse. In a way, people are still like, Ooh, star I'm like, that, that, That's like talking about, I don't know, those CD ROMs from the 90s or the encyclopedias. Nobody, it's, yeah, it's like you can get validation from Twitter, but like you should then realize that you wanting that validation should inspire you to apply those muscles in other areas of life.
0: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, like if you're getting something out of Twitter, goddamn good for you. Um, and I don't mean like you personally, Donnie. I mean like in general, right? If you if you are still enjoying it, that's great. I will say when I quit, I suddenly went, oh, I don't have this thing I need to be obsessed about. Maybe I could channel that into more yeah, productive it makes me, areas. It makes me nostalgic. If, if people want to devote their lives to that, well, I mean, God bless them. Before Twitter, I used to do fantasy
1: baseball, which is a horrible way to spend your time. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Like you're pretending
0: to own players you don't
1: own. And it wasn't even like you were gambling money. So like, what is a complete at, waste and of at time. The, and
0: at the same time, it's like, look, if you get joy out of fantasy baseball, then goddamn, go do fantasy no, baseball. Don't do
1: it because it ruins your ability to support the teams you actually like. Okay. And my brother's like, ah, oh, I can't like watch the Tigers because they got these two guys and I'm rooting for them. Whatever. I'm not trying to judge your religion. Of fantasy baseball, fantasy yeah, baseball. I mean, or... yeah, I, mean, I, yeah I, I don't do fantasy
0: baseball. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, look, if you are enjoying – if people are enjoying what they're doing on Twitter, that's great. Mostly what I hear these days from people on it is it's just miserable trolling. And also, I think the fantasy – and let's be honest, it was always a fantasy that – uh Agents from the coast were going to come in and Well, there's a there's a few people who were able to succeed, but honestly they probably could have just avoided Twitter and just worked like their local There were some people who did get magical golden tickets. It was a very brief window when the entertainment industry said, Oh shit, this Twitter thing is happening. We don't know what it is or how like how it works, but we should get some of it because people are talking about it a lot. And there's some people that got their golden tickets, and again, good for them. Like you said, they probably would have succeeded at writing. You know, Shelby Farrow was going to succeed at comedy writing no matter what she did.
1: Yeah, before she was on Twitter, she was writing stuff for Cracked that was getting like a million views, so it was all the same. Exactly so. Like people who are, yeah, I mean, I'd say the best thing about it, I met some real comedians, and they were like, hey, why are you fucking around in here? Go do open mics. And I was like, all right. Right. And that was good. I could have also just read a book and learned that. But I still use Twitter um, really just to like – Play catch with, like, the 50 to 80 people on there that I think are still funny. And we, we just play catch with each other's jokes, you know, at this point. Like, yeah. I thought that was funny. I think this is funny. But it's hard to talk about, like, the things that you want to talk about, though, because of the extreme increase in trolling. Uh You know, there's this whole Gamergate situation, which... For whatever right. reason, uh, women on the internet are just being targeted with extreme rape and death threats, and the Gamergate people are like, that's not us, that's people pretending to be us. Who cares who it is, though? Right. It's just a fact of the existence on there. Now your narrative is being – you can't help seeing this thing that your female friends are like, oh, my God, I just said I don't play video games, and now this person's threatening to
0: kill my family. Right. That's not fun. Yes, and that's uh, Gamergate would be number one with a bullet on reasons why I'm not eager to get back. Well, the – violent, psycho people there. Right. And, and it's, I guess one of the things that I'm still sort of working through is, you know, if we're talking like sort of future of the republic, I don't know exactly how to solve this problem. But I do feel that part of the real problem we have as a country these days is that it's no longer a matter of Picking a politician based on how they think they could solve the current issues—it's that there's no common agreement on facts. In other words, I don't think there has ever been anyone in the history of social media who said, "Boy, I didn't think climate change was a thing," but now, thanks to someone's well-reasoned argument in a thread, I'm now on board. And, and, th- th- and that sort of goes to the emotional truth, like. Someone who is convinced that GamerGate is about ethics and gamer journalism, I have no logical common ground with that person to have a fruitful discussion. Because all I can say to them is, no, it's not. And that's, you know, that's not a fruitful discussion. And that, I I mean, I do think it's a real problem that we can't even agree on what the facts are. Twitter, and to some extent Facebook, I mean, you know, it just seems to be there's no there's no one persuadable because the, you know, once you see a guy trying to present facts on Facebook, the, the a danger of the internet now is that you can find your own set of facts that looks equally valid to the other person's facts. Yes. And then you go down the rabbit hole of, like, well, your source is, like, you know, and now we're all reading primary scientific documents and trying to evaluate them. That's the
1: one thing about Facebook, though, is like, I see this even on comedian forums. I saw somebody start an argument the other day about global warming.
0: Then 828 more replies. Oh, no, I'm not reading that. Oh, <laughs> right, right. Well, because you, you, know, you, know you know what the arguments are going to be, right? Like, you've heard at this point, anyone who is relatively sentient and live, living in the United States has heard both the pro-arguments for global warming and the anti-arguments for global warming. And they've made their choice. And you can determine and you can say that one of these arguments is grounded in scientific consensus and observable statistics, and the other one is like Dennis Miller bullshit. But they're not you know, it's funny and you were talking about right wing comedians. I in an effort to try and expand my mind, I watched a Dennis Miller special.
1: Oh, it's just not even jokes
0: anymore. He's just like parodying himself. He's like his own angry grandpa. Well, and the thing is, like, he did a couple shots at celebrities at the beginning, and fine, okay, you know, some of that was reasonably amusing. And then he got into global warming, and he was, of course, trying to make this sort of like a jokey argument, but he was trying to actually make an actual argument. And his ridicule of the other side was, well, Cha-Cha, they say that the temperature's gone up over a hundred years. It's funny how they're gonna put all their faith in the fact that guys a hundred years ago could accurately record the temperature. Yeah. And I just I, I just listened to that. And I'm like, but that's not how it works. Dear Dennis Miller, they do core sample drilling in the Antarctic to record the amount of hydrogen and carbon in the atmosphere during different times. And you're ridiculing something that no one on the other side says. But yeah, yeah but that was my problem, which is like there are many things you can mock liberals for. You know, I do it sometimes myself. But this one you just don't know how it works. I wish we could just reset public
1: attitudes and opinions that have happened since the Internet, enable people to look up things that look official but aren't really, and say, let's stop looking for arguments to support what you
0: think, and just read some science books that aren't ideological. Right, though that also posits some sort of, we try to think of like the pre-Internet as some sort of golden age, People were
1: still dumb. They just didn't know how to find documents to support. Justify them. their so dumbness,
0: yes. So they just said, I don't believe in all that crap anyway. I ain't come from no monkey. Right. I ain't no monkey. Right. I mean, they're, they, you know, and that's sort of a perfect example where, for God's sakes, you know, it's been over 100 years since Darwin. and No one just,
1: says you came from a monkey. You share a common ancestor with a monkey. Right. And also with every other land animal.
0: Right, I mean, there, there, there is basic scientific premises there that are simply rejected on ideological grounds, and just to be really depressing about it, the stats go backwards. I mean, there are fewer people that believe in evolution today than did twenty years ago. Uh, the
1: confusion industries of you know right wing pseudo babble sure. have successfully muddied the concept of evolution. They'll like take a piece of it that's not even essential
0: to it, and they'll say, "Well, that
1: disproves evolution." Right.
0: You know, One like of the more depressing statistics that I found recently is that they had done uh, some studies on this and the higher you score on intelligence tests means that you are the least persuadable. If you are a person that scores well on you know on the IQ tests and you believe that global warming doesn't exist, you are less persuadable than an idiot who doesn't believe that global warming exists. Because a smart person can actually manipulate the symbols of language to reaffirm that emotional truth which is n- no it's not I, I hate to use the word smart for that there's a lot of people in my
1: family like that who are like let's say they're academically accomplished sure but they're not smart because they believe stupid crap and then they defend their arguments really well cuz they're able to use academic type logic but really, you're stupid, because you've convinced yourself of a thing without real evidence. And now you're now you're defending your own bullshit to other people really well. But, like, really, a smart person looks for good evidence, and if it's not there, then he doesn't accept it. Whenever I talk to people that disagree with me, even though I'm, I have opinions on most things, but, like, if someone, especially someone who's conservative or religious, wants to make an argument to me, I'll sit there and listen to what they say, and if it Once in a while, it's solid on its own merits. And I'll say, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Right. Because that just, uh, I can't remember the name for this, but it's a classic phenomenon in psychology where smart people are more perceptive of how stupid they are. And stupid people do not perceive that they're stupid. So if you're smart, you're like, oh, but there's so much I don't know yet, though, really. And if you're stupid, they're like, I think I got this. You eat pancakes in the morning. That's all there is to life. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I don't know.
0: You can see it in real life. You can also see it on social media. I think Facebook even a little bit more than Twitter, just because you can only work up so much of a head of steam in 140 characters. But like, there's the point where you can see the metal shutters slide down behind their eyes like a shop closing. Just wrap it all up anyway. Yeah, sure. The mistakes
1: that were made that we discussed in this podcast, just the world that we live in now, there's just too much bad information out there. If you wanted to vote for governor and you voted for the guy that uh, you had no information about because you had opinions about the other guy and uh, you know, when you're doing comedy and you're, and you're mad that somebody else got some stuff, you didn't, uh, you know, there's the bad information out there with that uh, is that anyone deserves anything. You just have to do something good,
0: make good shit, man. Peter John you're not on Twitter. I have a deactivated account. That I reactivate you know, every 30 days or something like that just so that nobody can swipe it, which is part of the insanity of Twitter, which is that people do do crazy shit like that. Yeah, but you're on Facebook and your website, which is Uh You can also go to my podcast at uh, www.weekindespair.com, and it's on iTunes and all, all the rest of that sort of nonsense. Word.
1: Well, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with more Mistakes. What
0: do you know now it's my turn to put